We are in the middle of a series going through the book of Ephesians. We were looking at Ephesians 1 through 3, and we called that series Scandalous Grace. And the reason why we called that series Scandalous Grace is because what Paul says in Ephesians 1 through 3 is basically all about the work that he's done to accomplish salvation, the work that God has done to accomplish salvation for us. And in Ephesians 4 through 6, he looks at then how should we live in light of the work that God has done. And so when you hear this sermon today, I don't want you to feel condemnation. I don't want you to feel legalism. I don't want you to feel any of that kind of stuff because this is all founded on the truths that God has already done the work for us and His Holy Spirit will empower us to change as His people. Three years ago, my little brother made a terrible life-altering mistake. He was a senior in high school uh, in central Kentucky where I grew up, and he decided midway through senior year that he was going to stop going to school. Now, in the back of his mind, it's like, well, they won't mind if I miss a week. I'll still get to pass and walk. And then a week led to two weeks, which led to a month, which led to six weeks. And in the midst of this, I think my brother was saying, ah, it'll all work out. Nothing will happen. Well, all of a sudden, he gets the news that he's not going to graduate high school anymore. Go, go figure, right? You don't go to school. You don't graduate high school. Note to self, don't do that. But my brother, so, so what's happening with this is my brother is doing something very deceitful meanwhile. Uh, he's telling my father that he's at school every day. And so he's playing this part where, you know, he's taking his lunch money that my dad's giving him and he's spending it on like computer games or something like that. And, and he's telling dad that every, yeah, my math homework was real tough today, but I got through it. And he's, he's living this lie. He's living this story. And in the midst of this, I find out, I call my brother one day and I say, hey, John, how are you doing, bro? And he kind of is pulling the wool over my eyes for a few minutes. And then I just kind of said, I stopped and I said, hey, how are you really doing? And there was a long silence followed by just a great sadness that I sensed in his voice. And he said, he said I'm not doing well. I'm, I'm living this lie. And he began to tell me about the things that he was doing. And, and, and I said, John, you know what we've got to do? We've got to come clean. We've got to come into the light. We've got to tell the truth about the situation that you're in. And, and he responded with the same way that I knew that he would respond, because I would respond the same way. No, there's no way I'm telling Dad. He won't understand. He'll just blow up in anger. And so he wanted to hide. He wanted to lie. He wanted to continue that story. He did not want to come clean with my dad, but he wanted a way out. And the only way for that way out was to come into the light, to come into the truth. And so, and so what happened was we set up a plan. We devised a scheme where we would tell the truth. It was this beautiful thing. And I knew as soon as my brother began to tell the truth to my father, my father would call me immediately. Because my dad and I our relationship's a little unique in the sense that sometimes he calls me for parenting advice with my little brother, which is just a unique dynamic if you've never experienced that before. Love my dad dearly. So he calls my father, and I'm 500 miles away running point from Atlanta. Immediately after this happens, I get the phone call from my dad. My dad is furious. And in the midst of this, he blows up on my brother, probably says a few four-letter words, and the house is in turmoil. So if we stop that story... Right there, you and I would look at that story and look at all the different sin. You'd see anger in my father. You'd see stealing in my brother, lying in my brother, deception. You'd see all these things. You'd say, man, what a mess. And it was a mess. But you know what I began to sense in the middle of this as I talked to my father about it? Because what I, I talked to my brother and then my father. And my brother, I began to ask, Jonathan, why are you doing this? 
Why are you giving up on school? Why did you decide to, to go down this route? And I began to find out that, year, that high school for him had been a terrible experience. That every single day that he went into school, he would experience a sense of, of failure and, and disappointment because he didn't stack up to all the things that he thought that he should and all the things that he thought his friends should. So in his mind, his only way out was to stop going to school, to just kind of disappear, to just kind of fade into the background. You see, it was a disordered love that my brother was experiencing. You see, he, he wanted to, to know the true love that comes from God, and the way that he felt like he could experience it is if he just started telling these lies and just escaped the circumstance that he'd gotten himself into. Now, if we look at my father, my father blows up in a, in a fit of anger, which is not too uncommon for the Johnson boys to do. And if we looked at that situation, we'd say, man, what a, a graceless man. But as I was talking to my father, I said, Dad, why do you think Jonathan is behaving? Why do you think Jonathan does not want to tell you the truth? Because there's something behind that that we need to figure out. We need to go beneath the surface and figure out why he doesn't want to tell you the truth. And he began to weep. And my dad said this, it's just one more way for, for everyone to see that I'm a failure. You see, what my dad was trying to do was to squeeze his approval out of my brother's succeeding. And that plan had fallen flat on its face. And so you see, it was a disordered love in my father as well, because my father was trying to seek this love and this approval that can only come from God through my brother's success. And when that fell flat, he found himself in the same situation that he had his entire life. I would venture to say that nearly all sin that you struggle with and that I struggle with comes from a pursuit of God's love that is disordered. You see, we go about it in a way that causes us to sin. We go about it in such a way where we say, we will take things into our own hands. And it's disordered. The proper order of love is this. We love God. We respond to God's love toward us. And we love Him. And then we love others. And then we love ourselves. But what happens when we sin is the, the order of love changes. And we decide to take things into our own hands. Jesus has not left us in the middle of our mess. God sent Jesus to redeem us from the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. He then sent the Holy Spirit to apply the work of Christ to our lives. And because of the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can see our hearts rightly ordered. Because you know what the Spirit of God does? It, it brings us into cooperation with God's will. He brings us to the place where things in our lives can be rightly ordered. In Christ, we can change. That's the big idea for today. In Christ, we can change. You see, I have never met a Christian that says to themselves, I don't really want to change. There's nothing about myself I want to change. And if that's you, you're probably telling yourself a lie. Because I've been in those places before, and I've been lying. I've been trying to cover up and manipulate my sin to think that I'm actually living before the face of God, and I'm actually living a lie. We all want to change. We all want to be more like Jesus, because that's what the Holy Spirit does inside of us. It conforms us more to the image of Christ. We want to change. So how will we change? Well, we'll change in Christ. Romans 8, 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit that dwells in you. My life and your life are all damaged and marred by sin. And the world tells us that we're disqualified from the race because of our sin. But God says, no, no, your sin is actually what qualifies you to run the race in the Holy Spirit because you need a Savior. You can't do it on your own. 
And that's the truth about my father and my brother and what God is doing in that relationship. So the main thrust of our text today, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. And the main thrust of this text as I kind of look back on it and I kind of marinated in what God's word was saying is this verse in Ephesians 4.30. I think everything kind of hinges on this verse in this passage here. Ephesians 4.30 says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a strange thing to say? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You see, grief occurs in a person when they experience a sense of loss. In this passage, when Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, what we see is that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit's a weird thing to us, and a lot of times it's kind of the forgotten God, as Francis Chan once famously stated and wrote a book about. It's the forgotten God. We don't like to talk about the Holy Spirit because it's a strange thing to us, but the Holy Spirit is a person that dwells inside of you and I. And brings to mind all the things of truth, all the things of Jesus, and conforms us more into the image of Jesus. It's God's gift to us. It's the deposit that God is going to come back and fully redeem us. And that in this life, He's going to consistently change us and mold us more into the image of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Charles Hodge, who was a a Presbyterian pastor and, and theologian, said this, To grieve Him, therefore, is to wound Him on whom our salvation depends. Though he will not finally withdraw from those in whom he dwells. So he's not going to leave us. He's not going to forget about us. He's not going to be through with us if we're in Christ. But when grieved, he withholds the manifestations of his presence. So there is something happens when we continue to, to sin and sadden the heart of God via the Holy Spirit inside of us. The scripture also says that the Holy Spirit is a seal to us. So you can have comfort if you're in Christ because what the Holy Spirit as a seal does in you and I is he seals in belief and he seals out unbelief. This is God's work. He carries us to completion. We can't do this on our own. It's all the work of God. So this love that flows from God is a, is a pure love. And when the flow of God's love begins to flow through humanity, often it becomes disordered and distorted through the way that we live our lives. And it's, it's all this disordered love that I'm talking about that leads to our sin, which led St. Augustine to once famously say this, but living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things, to love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, namely your sin, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. When a good thing is made into an ultimate thing, sin occurs in our lives, and it separates us from God. So our question that we're going to address today The question that we're going to look at through the remainder of the text that we're looking at today is what is it that grieves the Holy Spirit? And Paul mentions a few things here that we're going to look at. It's not a comprehensive list of sin. But yes, we're going to look at sin today. And and we're probably going to discover that we're guilty of some of these things. And you know what? The enemy is going to want to condemn you. He's going to want to shackle you. 
But you're going to have to be reminded that God's grace is much stronger than the sin you've gotten yourself into. And then what we're going to do is we've discovered our sin. God has exposed us to the wickedness of our heart. We're going to turn to Jesus once again. We're going to turn to the cross and we're going to ask for forgiveness. And we're going to follow him. And that's what it looks like to live as a Christian. So as you hear these things today, I I do want you to grieve over your sin, but I want you to grieve, as as the book of Romans says, or maybe it's 1 Corinthians, that, that, that Paul was not saddened because the Corinthians grieved, because they were grieved into repenting. We want to grieve over our sin into repenting. So let's look at this. Now, what grieves the Holy Spirit? The first thing is this right here, Ephesians 4.25. It's this crooked love, this lying heart that Paul talks about. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. You see, the old self, as he says right here, having put away falsehood, the, the old self is a false self. So your life before coming in Christ is a false self. But the enemy wants nothing more than to tell you that that's actually who you are. That this, that you're going to church, you're you're, you're attending a missional community, you're experiencing the grace of God, that this isn't really who you are. He wants to tell you that, that who you were before is really who you are. And he wants to take you back to let you dwell in that. But in Christ, we must fight for and live out our identity in this new true self that the Holy Spirit produces inside of us. Because the accuser, guess what he wants to do? He wants to accuse you. He wants you to feel like God has left you. He wants you to feel like you have disappointed God and there is no way for you to receive and grab hold of the salvation from what you've gotten yourself into. That's what he wants to do. And this is where we pick up because we believe lies and then we tell lies. We all do it. We live in a culture, think about this, we live in a culture that is built on deception. I was recently watching TV, this commercial comes on TV, and it's a commercial about beer, okay? Uh, And this commercial, it's like all of a sudden this guy opens a beer, and, uh, and, and his life completely changes. It's like this transformed life, like a club shows up in his living room after he opens this beer, and everyone loves him. He's the life of the party. If you drink Bud Light, a club is not going to show up in your living room. I promise you. It's not going to happen. But on and on and on and on, again, we look at this deception that our culture sells, and we want to buy into that there might be some truth in that. And I'm just showing you one example. But that's what our culture is built on. That's what marketing is built on, is selling something, making it seem better than it actually is. All lies, as I've found... Our birth in a disordered love. So what is a lie? That's what we've got to ask ourselves. A lie is any time that we're not fully transparent about the truth. So it can be as in- innocent as exaggerating a story for effect, such as, you know, the fish that David caught was this big, I promise, when it was like a little bluegill. It was this big, I promise. Fishermen are the best liars, right? Or it could be as good as saying, man, I played a really good round of golf this week. In fact, I actually got a hole-in-one. Like, that would be a good, a good thing, right? Mike actually got a hole-in-one uh, recently playing golf. So he's not exaggerating. I think he's telling the truth. There was a, there was a witness. So it's, it's all good. Why do we lie? We lie because we think God's love or others' love for us cannot handle the truth. Maybe some of you have seen the, 
the movie A Few Good Men. There's a famous line in that movie, and it's with uh, Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise. And, you know, Jack Nicholson is, is kind of like, he's like kind of on, on trial up there. He's got he's to answer some questions. And Tom Cruise is like, hey, man, I just really want to get to the truth. And what's Jack Nicholson say? You want the truth? You can't, you can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. This is the way that we treat God. We think that he can't handle the truth about who we are. Somehow we think that he only sees part of us. And so that's why we lie. We think that his grace isn't big enough. Or we think that the, the, the grace that maybe someone else might show us or not show us isn't big enough or not sufficient enough when we come clean with who we are. In lying, we falsely assume that the, that the event or the circumstances that have caused us to not tell the truth will simply disappear. That's what's going on in our mind. That's what the enemy is doing in our mind. Hey, man, this will just all disappear. If you just tell one little white lie, it will all go away. But instead, we are, we are forced to jump on this hamster wheel. We're forced to, to get on the treadmill of lying, and you continue to tell one lie after another lie after another lie. And eventually, it all falls apart because the hamster can't stay on the wheel forever. Mark Twain, a great author and, quite frankly, an atheist, says something very truthful. If you tell the truth... You don't have to remember anything. That's wisdom. If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. I don't know about you, but in my life when I've told lies before, it's always like, oh, which, which version of that story did I tell them? Or did I tell mom that? Or dad, I can't. And eventually things are exposed. I find it interesting that in the word, Christians are called witnesses. That's one of the things that the scriptures call us. And, and being a false witness is, uh, it's, it's one of the Ten Commandments, right? It's one of the seven deadly sins, lying. Uh, and being a false witness, what does it lead to? It leads to lying. Acts 1.8 says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So we talked about Pentecost last week. We talked about this idea of the Holy Spirit coming to dwell upon His people and the birthday of the church. So you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then what will you do? You will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. When you sign a legal document, or when you're in a court case, or, an, or you witness an accident, uh, there has to be, or you're in an accident, there has to be a witness. Why? Why is there a witness? To give accountability and verification to the truth. As Christians, we are called to be living, true witnesses. So our testimonies about the truth is what propagates the advancement of the gospel. If we live lies, we're propagating lies. So this reordered antidote is this, is that we find freedom in truth. Do you know what you and I actually desire? What our deepest desire is? Well, Jesus hits the nail on the head in John 8, 32. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth is what sets us free. Galatians 5, 1, Paul says this, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Don't return again to a yoke of slavery. In our lives, we are being held captive and we must come clean because the enemy is whispering in our ear when we lie, they'll never believe you. This will never happen. You can never come clean because, because then what are they going to think about you? If you actually tell God who you are, what, what will happen? John Piper uh, uses a great example for that phrase, we are members of one another, when he talks about lying. He says, tell the truth to your brother because we're members of one another. He says it's kind of like this. I think he has in mind this kind of idea. If the body is eating with a fork and the eye 
lies to the hand about where the mouth actually is, why the hand may stab the eye. In other words, when you deceive a fellow believer, it's like deceiving yourself. So as Christians, when we withhold truth, when we tell lies to one another, we're hurting one another because we're all part of the same body. So why do we lie? Quickly, we, I think we lie predominantly for two reasons. We lie because of fear. Uh, we're afraid of our consequences of being found out, and we think that we actually know better than God. And so we play the part of God. I think we also lie because of greed. So maybe we're greedy for material possessions or more money, and so we think we have to lie to be able to get that and tell things that are not true to people to be able to get that. Or we're greedy for praise and approval. And so we'll take the credit where the credit is actually not ours. Or we'll do whatever it takes to get our egos inflated so that we can receive the praise and approval that we think that we need, that we think God is sufficient in giving us. We lie because we don't think God will provide. That's why we lie. And when we lie, we think it's easier. And all the while, what's happening is the foundations of our lives are being eroded. They're melting away day by day. So what do we do? Maybe, maybe you're like, hey, I'm good. I'm an open book. I tell the truth all the time. Awesome. That's great. We'll get to whatever your sin you're dealing with in a moment. But, but seriously, if you, deal, if you deal with it, I mean, sometimes I stretch stories and things like that for effect, and it's like, I think they're kind of harmless, but it's just kind of, I'm becoming, sometimes I've become numb to what the truth actually is, and I give the enemy a foothold in my soul. And so what do you do if, you're, maybe, you're a, maybe you're a perpetual liar, you're a compulsive liar, maybe that's you, maybe it's not, I don't know, but if you struggle with lying, the bottom line is this, we've got to come clean, we've got to get off the hamster wheel, we've got to let the light expose what has been in darkness, because you've got to remember that in your lying, you're not just hurting yourself, you're hurting others. And Jesus came to rescue. Jesus came to rescue us from this very thing, to set us free in light of the truth. There's lying. I promise they're not all going to be that long. So what grieves the Holy Spirit? Violent love, anger, is what Paul says next. Ephesians 4.26 and 4.27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun Go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You know, the devil, he's an opportunist. He's always looking for a place in your life to take complete advantage and assault you. That's what he is looking to do. And when, whenever, we're, whenever we're caught in sin, this disbelief, this disordered love, we are giving him an opportunity to take advantage of. He's prowling around in the darkness, whispering lies and tempting you with all hell to seduce you into believing something that is not true. So this disordered symptom is unrighteous anger. It's this anger that is not righteous. In a few moments, we'll talk about righteous anger because it says, in your anger, do not sin. So there must be a type of anger that is not sinful. So first, we're going to talk about unrighteous anger. When I'm angry, most of the time, I realize this week, because I just asked God to show me, God, why do I get mad? And God has given me lots of uh, opportunities to repent this week. God's an opportunist as well. Giving me lots of opportunities to repent, especially with my kids. Because those little people, guess what? They have a mind and a will of their own. And a lot of times it doesn't, it doesn't bend to what dad wants to see happen, right? They just kind of do their own thing a lot of times. Now, there are glimpses, there are moments where, man, they're just walking in perfect obedience, and you're like, wow, 
I've arrived. <laughs> but that's not most of the time. And that's not most of the time with me either. So whenever I'm angry, it's because of unmet expect, expectations. So I'm not pleased with whatever is going on with either you or myself. You know, sometimes I get angry at myself. Do you guys struggle with that? I get angry with myself because I've set an expectation that I can't meet. And I start to beat myself up and get angry with myself. The other times we get angry is just because um, someone isn't giving us what we want. I was thinking about anger this week, and this kind of illustration came to my mind. Whenever we get angry, it's kind of like this. You know, this works itself out in marriage or, you know, just relationships with your friends or your parents. And, and you begin to point the finger at the other person. You're like, no, you shouldn't have done that. What were you thinking? And the other person's like, well, I did it because of you. You weren't around or you, you said something like this about me. And we begin to go back and forth and beat each other up. And you know what God says to us? You know what the Holy Spirit says to us? He says, what is the source of that anger? He begins to open our book, doesn't he? He begins to open our book and say, oh, I see what the problem that is going on, the malfunction in your heart, the disordered love that you're trying to seek something from someone else that only God can give. I see it's right here. And he begins to read our hearts because the source of anger is not an external situation or circumstance. It comes from within our hearts. So if you struggle with being angry, maybe it's just little kind of flare-ups or whatever, we need to ask God to show us what's on the inside. What is malfunctioning on the inside of us? Our, the, kind of the reordered antidote for anger is this. We must understand in our battle with anger that we are not God. And this is really hard for Americans, right? Because quite frankly, we, we, we think, ah, if I just put enough uh, willpower into this or enough determinism, then I can make it happen. Well, you're not God. Listen to the words of James. James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He says this, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of the law. You've changed your position in your mind. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to be angry with your neighbor? The context of this passage is all about anger. So what James does here is something profound because a lot of times we want to look at what has gone wrong on the outside when we're in a frustrated, anger-driven kind of relationship or circumstance that happens. We want to start fixing the exterior. James surpasses this. He says, hey, let's look at what's seated on the throne of the heart. When you're angry, let's look and see what's seated. He goes straight past the behavior to the inner core of anger. You'll not go to Barnes & Noble and find one self-help book that's going to tell you what I'm about to tell you. God's Word says this, that in sinful anger, according to this verse, when we're experiencing that, it's happening because you are trying to be God. This is why, in, in, in a circumstance, the reality can be the same in two different circumstances. My brother stopped going to high school. It can be, it can be the same in both, both situations here, but the reaction can be quite different from my father. And this is what happens when your lives are built upon the premise that God is God and you are not. But when we think we're God and things don't go right because we're not sovereign, 
That's when we get frustrated. When the, when the pond did not move like we expected it to move, that's when we get really frustrated. This phrase, don't let the sun go down in your anger. In the second week of our marriage, the honeymoon stage had quickly ended. Megan and I had gotten to a tiff, we'll call it, and we, we were back at, at, at home in Las Vegas from our honeymoon, and, and I remember we got frustrated. You know, it's like, the, it's like the arsenic hours of a marriage, like from 9 to midnight, right? If you're awake and you want to discuss something important, that's kind of like when things are, man, things are prone to get misunderstood and a miscommunication can kind of happen in those hours. And so we got into a, 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 a situation, and I probably said something really stupid, and Megan left the room. And by the way, she did read this before, so I'm not just throwing this on her. She left the room, and I thought to myself, oh, the bed to myself tonight. This is going to be fantastic. And then the Holy Spirit, you know what the Holy Spirit did? He said, <laughs> Ephesians 4, buddy, don't let the sun go down on your anger. What are you thinking? And he began to remind me, and I take this, I actually take this passage pretty literally right here. I think that there's something to said about dealing with confrontation, especially when it comes to anger immediately. And so I, I left the bedroom, made the long walk into the living room, and, and repented. And I called out what was in the inside of my heart, and I asked God to forgive me, and asked my wife to forgive me. And we, we were reconciled. And it was this beautiful picture. And by God's grace, Megan and I have, have been able to handle anger and confrontation pretty quickly, even though it seems crazy for a little bit uh, in the midst of those moments. But I think that there's something to be said about not letting the sun go down in your anger. So whether that's with your wife or with your parents, with your kids, whenever a situation like that comes up, it's, it's best, as my friend Rod says, to meet the conflict head on. Because you assume that it's not there. You're like, oh, tomorrow will be a better day. His mercies are new every morning, right? It'll be a better day. We'll just all forget about this. Well, there's still a seed planted of sin in both of your hearts. And what the enemy, the opportunist, wants to do is he wants to come back and take advantage of that at the opportune time. And so we've got, we've got to, you've got to hit the conflict head on. Even though it seems crazy to kind of come in the midst of it, that's what it means to not let the sun go down on your anger. Also, he talks about anger, and he says, hey, not, not every kind of anger is sinful. Be angry and do not sin. The Bible is full of examples of God being angry. And so if God's angry, uh, it's not sinful, right? He's, he's angry with the Israelites. Jesus is angry with those that are in the temple when he flips over the tables. There's a righteous type of anger. Or maybe a good example of a righteous anger in my family would be uh, the neighbor in my neighborhood that drives 50 miles an hour down to our cul-de-sac. And Mama Bear comes out the garage and says, Aah! and she goes over and she goes and talks to them about their driving habits. So there's a protection of our children that is, that is righteous in that sense because we're responsible for those kids. There is a righteous anger that we can have. So when we see un unrighteous anger flare up, I think we need to stop and ask a couple questions in the moment. Just ask yourself these questions. Why am I angry? What's really going on underneath the surface? Maybe what expectations are going unmet and why is my joy dependent upon these expectations? And another question, if you really want to be really daring, is how am I trying to play God in this situation? Thirdly, impoverished love, theft. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. 
I thought to myself, what a strange thing for Paul to, to mention stealing. It kind of seems like an elementary sin, right? You're like, stealing? Really? And then I began to think a little bit more about it and was convicted uh, about this. Uh, when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, he comes to him in his weakness to tempt him. And, and Satan tempts Jesus to shortcut the way of the cross. That's what he's doing in all four of those examples of his temptation. He's, he's telling Jesus, hey, you don't really need to go to the cross. You don't really need to die to yourself, Jesus. Show the world who you are in power. Don't go through the painful, self-sacrificial, self-denial route, Jesus. Turn these stones into bread. I know you're hungry. Throw yourself down from here. Show them that it won't kill you. In the, in the same way, Satan comes to you and me and he says, take the shortcut. Take the easy route. No one will know. Look at everything you don't have. The interesting thing about Satan's accusations for us to steal are they always focus on our lack of something. Anytime that you're in a temptation to steal anything, maybe it's time from your employer or money or I think that employers can, can steal against their employees, can, can, can be thieves of their employees by not paying them a fair wage. I think that employees can, can rob their employers of, of time, you know, maybe doing shoddy work, not good work. You know, we can, there's lots of ways that we can steal. And anytime that we're tempted to steal, it's all, we're always focused on the lack. Well, I'm not getting paid enough. Or they don't respect me enough. Or I really want this possession and I don't have enough. And what nips that in the bud is whenever we see that God has provided this is why the scriptures talk so much about contentment. This is why Paul says, you know, whatever circumstance I'm in, I've learned to be content. Contentment is the antithesis of stealing. So what's this reordered antidote for us? It's to remember, friends, that you and I are stewards. That everything that we have is a gift from God, and you and I are called to manage the things that God has given us, whether that be time, treasures, or talents. Everything is before the face of God. Everything belongs to God, and you and I are called to steward that well. The antidote for this impoverished love of stealing is to reorder it in light of God being on the throne and giving his children gifts, because that's what God does. You and I ought to learn the, the art of contentment, and we come from, from seeing that God has provided everything. Lastly, this, this filthy love, rotten, this rotten, filthy love in Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Isn't it interesting that the last two verses we've read all talk about having something to give, giving grace, working hard so that you will have something to give to your neighbor. So this... It's interesting that James talks a lot about the tongue. And the thing that I find interesting about the tongue and about our speech is that he uses these two examples that are pretty famous that maybe some of you have heard of before. He talks about the bit that goes in a horse's mouth. And he also talks about the rudder that goes behind a ship. And his point being this is both of those instruments are very small instruments. But they control a lot about those larger, the, the horse, you know, the bit controls where the horse goes. The rudder controls where the large ship goes. And our tongue, uh, the way that we speak and the way that we talk, has the same amount of power. It has this lasting effect that we think that these words will not hurt people, and they hurt people. The way that we speak really matters. James says this in James 3, 6 through 12. 
How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. It's set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. With your tongue we either bless or we curse God. And it is a very powerful instrument. The, the literal translation in the Greek for this word corrupt is this word rotten. So I was going to bring like a rotten banana because those are in my house a lot. I, I don't know what, you know, the brown. But, but have you ever thrown away a piece of fruit and you've made the mistake of leaving the garbage bag in the kitchen? And you're like, oh, what is that smell? And I start looking at my kids. I'm like, do you need a diaper change or what? Like, what's going on? What does that smell? Well, it begins to smell really poorly, doesn't it? Well, that's the same word used here for corrupt, is that it's rotten. And so what does a rotten piece of fruit do? Well, if we were to, if we were to uh, consume that, uh, it wouldn't really nourish us, would it? It would kind of upset our stomachs. Uh, it would make us sick. And it doesn't... It doesn't really nourish other people when we speak that kind of talk. This rotten talk tears down instead of building up. So how is this corrupt talk manifest in our culture today? I think predominantly two things, and they're kind of polar opposites seemingly. And it's this. It's a, first one is a vulgarity and sexual kind of speech that's just completely inappropriate. The second one is gossip, which is the more subtle. It's the silent killer. So in the vulgarity and sexual speech, the, the journey of vulgar speech in someone's mind goes like this. First, we get God out of our minds, and then we remove the sanctity of his creation and his intention in relationships out of our minds, and we replace the tenderness of married love with forceful, selfish desire for our own ambitions. Because we want approval. Whatever we're saying, we're looking for approval, for someone to think that that we're approvable unto them and unto God. And it's, it's, just this, it's, just, it's just kind of a rotten thing. And I think especially guys are really tempted toward this, maybe in the workplace, maybe on the golf course, I, whatever you're into, I think guys are more tempted to go down this road. But the words that we say have a lasting effect on others. And just because you're saying something to someone else doesn't mean that it doesn't affect the rest of your life. Paul says it have no part of this. This is destroying your life if you're speaking this way. Instead, speak grace. That's what your tongue was given to you for. It's to speak truth, to speak grace. The other one is gossip, the silent killer. So we may begin to share things that may or may not be true to people that may or may not have any business hearing them. And when we do this, we share this secret knowledge, we feel a certain amount of power in control because again it's that reordered love we're we're playing the part of god we're thinking if i could just share this information with someone 
then, then they'll first see that at least I'm not like that. And then they'll begin to think that, oh, like they have some kind of knowledge there that's, that's, that's beneficial. And it's just, it just tears, it tears people down. This is why we spend a lot of time in our church, uh, in, our, in our new members class, talking about this idea of what a, what a, what a good report and a bad report are. So instead of, instead of our vulgarity and sexual speech or our gossip, the scriptures say that gracious speech is what we're after. And gracious speech is not focused on us, but it's focused on other people. It's not focused on what we can get from sharing some information, but it's focused on what we can give because God has already given us his love. We're called to use our tongues to bless people, and our, mouth, our mouths are a means of God's grace to other people, to the world around us. A fountain of grace to an unbelieving and disbelieving world that you rub shoulders with every single day of your lives. To your kids, give them grace, encourage them. Have you ever thought to stop and, and see about the amount of times that you encourage them versus tear them down? Give them grace. Let them thrive in an environment of God's undeserved grace toward them. To your spouse, stop beating one another up with your words. The world does enough of that. Speak grace. Ask God to give you a filter before you speak. Speak the truth in love. To your coworkers, speak forgiveness and encouragement. Even if they didn't get the job done that they were supposed to do, speak grace. So does this mean that we can't say negative or critical things? No. There is a place for having critical conversations. But in the context of what Matthew 18 talks about, about first going to the person individually, if they then refuse to, to, to address whatever's going on with you, bring someone with you. And then in the church, we, we bring the elders involved if that doesn't work out. That's what it looks like to have these kind of conversations in a healthy way. So what's a bad report? A bad report is using words, facial expressions, or body language to put someone else in a bad light. So if someone asks you, hey, what do you think about Ryan? That would be an example of a bad report. But seriously, our, our facial expressions and our body language are just as powerful as our words, right? So what does it look like to speak grace with your body? What does it look like to share a graceful demeanor with people that are around you with how you carry yourself? Lastly, Paul says this in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be far away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Because our desires and our affections in life have been reordered by Christ, we are gracious people. And you know what? Forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. We all have bloodstained, distorted ways about us. We are all guilty of something that I've said today to some degree. And Jesus has forgiven us if we're in Christ. Let us show that same measure of forgiveness to the world around us. Behavior matters. And why does behavior matter? Not because it gains us anything in light of God, but because it reflects our hearts. And Jesus, he's always been after our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, in Christ we can change, not on our own power. You'll never let us do that. Give us hearts that are jealous for your glory.
to make your name and your renown known to the world around us. Let us not fear as we've been confronted with sin today. Because we have a sovereign that's far greater than our sin. Father, give us courage to turn from our sinful ways and to turn to you. Because you, just like in the story of the prodigal son, are a father that embraces both the elder son and the younger son. Father, open our hearts that we may receive the love that you have for us. Stains in all, sin in all. This is why Jesus came on the cross. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.